sleepy bear that has been prodded by a stick. My distinguished husband, the greatest Egyptologist of all time, rather resembled a bear at that moment. His broad shoulders were covered by a hideous, ill-fitting coat of prickly brown tweed, purchased one day when I was not with him, and his abundant sable locks were wildly dishevelled. He was working on his report of our previous season's excavations, and he was in a surly mood, for, as usual, he'd put the job off until the last possible moment, and was behind schedule. "'Is that Percy's cursed book you are reading?' he demanded. "'I thought I threw the damned thing into the fire.' "'You did.' Nefret gave him a cheeky smile. "'Emerson is known as the father of curses by his admiring Egyptian workmen.' His fiery temper and Herculean frame have made him feared throughout the length and breadth of Egypt. Mostly the former, since, as all educated persons know, Egypt is a very long, narrow country. However, none of those who know him well are at all intimidated by his growls, and Nefret has always been able to wind him round her slim fingers. I ordered another copy from London, she said calmly. Aren't you at all curious about what he writes? He is your own nephew, after all. He is not my nephew. Emerson leaned back in his chair. His father is your Aunt Emilia's brother, not mine. James is a hypocritical, sanctimonious, mendacious moron, and his son is even worse. Nefret chuckled. What a string of epithets. I don't see how Percy could be worse. Ha! said Emerson. Emerson's eyes are the brilliant blue of a sapphire, and they become even more brilliant when he is in a temper. Any mention of a member of my family generally does put him in a temper, but on this occasion I could tell he was not averse to being interrupted. He stroked his prominent chin, which is adorned with a particularly handsome dent, or dimple, and looked at me. Or, as a writer more given to clichés might say, our eyes locked. They often do, for my dear Emerson and I have shared one another's thoughts ever since that halcyon day when we agreed to join hearts, hands, and lives in the pursuit of Egyptology. I seemed to see myself reflected in those sapphirine orbs, not, thank heaven, as I really appear, but as Emerson sees me. My coarse black hair and steely grey eyes, and rather too rounded form, transfigured by love into his ideal of female beauty. In addition to the affectionate admiration mirrored in his gaze, I saw as well a kind of appeal. He wanted me to be the one to sanction the interruption of his work. I was not averse to being interrupted either. I'd been busily scribbling for several hours, making lists of things to be done, and writing little messages to tradesmen. There were more things than usual to be done that particular year. Not only the ordinary arrangements for our annual season of excavation in Egypt, but preparations for house guests and for the forthcoming nuptials of two individuals near and dear to all of us. My fingers were cramped with writing, and if I must be entirely honest, I will admit I have been somewhat annoyed with Emerson for burning Percy's book before I could have a look at it. The only other one of the family present was David. 
Strictly speaking, he was not a member of the family, but he soon would be, for his marriage to my niece, Leah, would take place in a few weeks. That arrangement had caused quite a scandal when the announcement was first made. David was a pure-bred Egyptian, the grandson of our late, greatly lamented Rais Abdallah. Leah was the daughter of Emerson's brother, Walter, one of England's finest Egyptological scholars, and of my dear friend Evelyn, granddaughter of the Earl of Chalfont. The fact that David was a talented artist and a trained Egyptologist carried no weight with people who considered all members of the darker races inferior. Fortunately, none of us gives a curse for the opinions of such people. David was staring out the window, his long, thick lashes veiling his eyes, his lips curved in a dreamy smile. He was a handsome young fellow, with finely cut features and a tall, sturdy frame, and in fact he was no darker in complexion than Ramsay's, whom he strongly and coincidentally resembled. "'Shall I read a bit aloud?' Lafrette asked. "'You've both been working so diligently. A hearty laugh will be good for you. And David isn't listening to a word I'm saying. He's daydreaming about Leah.' The mention of his name roused David from his romantic reverie. "'I am listening,' he protested, blushing a little. "'Don't tease him, Lefred,' I said, though I didn't think he minded. They were as close as brother and sister, and she was Leah's greatest friend. "'Read a little, if you like. My fingers are somewhat cramped.' <clears throat> said Emerson. Taking this for consent— which it was, Nefret cleared her throat and began. They attacked at dawn. I woke instantly at the sound of pounding hooves, for I knew what it meant. The Bedouin were on the warpath. I had been warned that the tribes were restless. My affectionate aunt and uncle, whom I had been assisting that winter with their archaeological excavations, had attempted to dissuade me from braving alone the perils of the desert, but I was determined to seek a nobler, simpler life, far from the artificiality of civilization. Good Gad! I exclaimed. He was of no assistance whatever, and we could hardly wait to be rid of him. He spent most of his time in the civilized artificiality of the cafes and clubs of Cairo, said Emerson, and he was a bloody nuisance. Don't swear, I said. Not that I supposed the admonition would have the least effect. I've been trying for years to stop Emerson from using bad language, and with equally poor success to prevent the children from imitating him. Do you want me to go on? Nefret inquired. I beg your pardon, my dear. Indignation overcame me. I'll skip over a few paragraphs, Nefret said. He blathers on at some length about how he hated Cairo and yearned for the austere silences of the desert waste. Now back to the Bedouin. Snatching up my pistol, which I kept ready by my cot, I ran out of the tent and fired point-blank at the dark shape rushing toward me. A piercing scream told me I had hit my target. I brought another down, but there were too many of them. Sheer numbers overwhelmed me. Two men seized me, and a third wrenched my pistol from my hand. In the strengthening light, I saw the body of my faithful servant. The hilt of a great knife protruded from the torn, blood-stained breast of Ali's robe. 
Poor boy, he had died trying to defend me. The leader, a swarthy, black-bearded villain, strode up to me. So, Ingleasy, he snarled, you have killed five of my men. You will pay for that. Kill me, then, I replied. Do not expect me to beg for mercy. That is not the way of the English. An evil smile distorted his hideously scarred face. A quick death would be too good for you, he sneered. Bring him along. Emerson flung up his hands. Stop! No more! Percy's prose is as paralyzing as his profound ignorance, but not as bad as his appalling conceit. May I pitch that copy onto the fire, Nefret? Nefret chuckled and clutched the imperiled volume to her breast. No, sir, it's mine and you cannot have it. I look forward to hearing what Ramsay has to say about it. What do you have against Percy, sir? David inquired. Perhaps I should not call him that. Call him anything you like, growled Emerson. Hasn't Ramses told you about his encounters with Percy? I asked. I felt sure he had. David was my son's best friend and confidant. I saw several of them, David reminded me. When uh, Percy was in Egypt three years ago, I could tell Ramses was not uh, overly fond of his cousin, but he didn't say much. You know how he is. Yes, I said, I do. He keeps things too much to himself. He always has done. There has been bad blood between him and Percy since the summer. Percy and his sister Violet spent several months with us. Percy was only ten years of age, but he was already a sneak and a liar. And little Violet was not much better. They played...